Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 84, produced 13 July, 2021. The Scottish Highlands, a wild and sparsely populated area known for its stark, picturesque beauty. It might be hard to imagine, but the rocky, often barren summits that dominate the region now were once covered by a vast temperate rainforest, woodlands teeming with wildlife that stretched from the Atlantic coast to the Great Glen and beyond. Today, barely 1% of this once majestic Caledonian forest remains. I'm Glenn Moyer, and Trees for Life are working to restore and rewild these woodlands with a vision of a great forest once again stretching across the top of Scotland. In a moment, we'll learn what's being done and how you can help, right here, under the tartan sky. Are you .scot yet? .scot is the domain for the worldwide community of Scots. It became available to the public in late 2014 and is used by the Scottish Government and Parliament, the National Health Service in Scotland and thousands of other organisations and individuals around the globe. .scot doesn't mind where you live or what kind of Scottish connection you have. If you're Scottish by birth, heritage or affinity, or an association that practices and promotes Scottish arts and culture, or a business with some kind of Scottish connection, then .scot is for you. Best of all, it's easy to sign up to. Simply visit domains.scot, choose your domain name, and you're off and running. And by the way, if you're just looking for a wee blather, our email service will help you do that too. .scot, be part of it. The Caledonian Forest, so named because the Romans referred to what is now Scotland as Caledonia, reached its zenith at about 5,000 BC and covered an estimated 15,000 square kilometers. Such forest once covered much of the island of Great Britain until a warming climate saw these temperate coniferous rainforests, dominated by the Scotch pine, retreating north into Scotland, its last vestige of a suitable climate. The Scotch pine were joined by other species like birch, rowan, aspen, juniper, oak, and more, and the land was rich in ground cover of ferns, mosses, and lichens. This warming climate change, however, reduced the forest significantly, and by 2000 BC and onward, human actions, including the grazing of sheep and deer, has continued its decline until today merely 1% of this great forest survives. What woodland area has survived is today limited to small, fragmented pockets dotted across the highland landscape, often only in areas that are too steep, rocky, or remote to be suitable for agriculture. Along with the loss of these woodlands through the ages has been the loss of significant wildlife, including some of the UK's rarest species. Extinct from these pine forests are the brown bear, 
the lynx, the gray wolf, and others, with the Scottish wildcat, the red squirrel, and still more severely threatened. Breeding bird species like the capercaillie, the Scottish crossbill, and others are found nowhere else in the British Isles, and thus their future depends on these pine forests. From 15,000 square kilometers to now barely 180 square kilometers, the Caledonian forest today can barely cast a shadow across its once vast expanse. Trees for Life is a charity working to rewild the Scottish Highlands. This begins with the planting of trees, but expands to include the revitalization of the woodland ecosystem and habitat from the very ground up from soil conservation to ground covering to insects, birds, mammals, and yes, the trees that tower above it all. Founded in 1993, Trees for Life has worked tirelessly with a vision to restore the Caledonian forest. In 2008, the charity purchased Dundregan, a highland estate that today serves as a tree nursery where they have successfully grown not just the iconic Scottish pine, but rare trees such as aspen, willow, and birches. The charity is also involved in programs to expand the footprint of red squirrels across Scotland and to reintroduce species like the beaver to the highland rivers and lochs. I first learned of the work of Trees for Life from my friend, Scottish travel blogger Suzanne Arbuckle of Adventures Around Scotland. Suzanne's love of her homeland led her to support Trees for Life by creating a small grove of trees to which her followers, including myself, can contribute. Having done this, I wanted to know more about the charity's work. So I sought out Doug Gilbert, conservation manager at Dundragon, to learn more about the once majestic Caledonian forest, just what's being done to revitalize these woodlands, and not just how, but why we should all be concerned and do what we can to support their efforts. I asked Doug first to help me understand just how massive the Caledonian forest once was. It was a very large forest, probably covering uh, 70, 80% of the, la of the land surface. Uh, and we're talking post-glacial now, you know, a time when human activity was very, very low, uh, if present at all. Um, it would have been a mixed forest, uh, part of the circumpolar boreal forest which which stretched across uh, Eurasia and uh, North America uh, part of that and yeah consisted of Scots pine um, yew and juniper which are only native uh, conifer trees here but also uh, a whole mix of broadleaf trees uh, oaks ash elm aspen birch a whole whole uh, suite of uh, trees that are now just missing from the landscape. And it would have covered uh, you know, a large majority of the, of the upland landscape of the highlands. So what we now see is these landscapes with, where no trees grow. Uh, we, and we're used to those pictures of the Scottish mountains um, in all their glory. Uh, that would have been a forested uh, landscape, uh, not only in the in the valleys where we're used to seeing trees now, but uh, scrambling up the up the mountains and sometimes over the tops of the mountains or some of the mountains. So there would be very little uh, open ground um, uh, uh, or places where you weren't within a stone's throw of a tree. The Caledonian forest, as it exists today, as I understand it, it it really is 
uh, broken up into small fragments. I think the last study, there were 30 or so, and, and one study broke it into, subdivided those fragments into even smaller ones and said there were 80 or so. But as I understand it, it only covers about 1% of the land that it used to. So how is Trees for Life involved in trying to conserve, restore, and revitalize these these small fragmented pine woods? Yeah, so uh, the 1% level is perfectly correct. That's um, We have 1% of the of the Caledonian pine wood resource uh, remaining in Scotland. So, and those are scattered over, as you say, about 80 sites uh, across Scotland. All of those are uh, recorded on uh, a Caledonian pine wood inventory. Uh, but it, uh, and even that doesn't re- really do them justice because m- uh, some of those fragments are either they're embedded in non-native conifer plantations or they're uh, still suffering from high levels of browsing pressure by deer and sheep and uh, and domestic stock. So there's still big problems um, associated with the conservation of uh, the Caledonian forest. And, and I should say that that's, that includes other species than pine. Pine is part of it. Uh, but the Caledonian forest would have been a, a much more mixed wood than we have nowadays. And what Trees for Life have been doing over the past what thirty years or so is uh, it's direct action, really. So it started out as a kind of guerrilla uh, conservation organisation using volunteers, basically to, to go out and start taking action uh, for these pine wood fragments by uh, removing non-native. Um, uh, species uh, that were invading uh, and crowding out uh, the the native species by getting into partnerships with the state um, uh, forestry uh, body and putting up fences, planting trees, uh, and generally doing as much as we could uh, to start to reverse that trend. But now, with uh, since we have been able to buy Dundragon, we've actually managed to get to the root uh, source of the problem, which is too much browsing pressure, particularly by uh, deer. And these are native deer, mostly native deer, uh, but their population has risen uh, beyond um, what really is the carrying capacity of a wooded landscape. So we're, we're able to do something about that at Dundragon by reducing a deer population. And we're starting to see the benefits of that through natural regeneration of, of woodland. Uh, and that really is the best way to do it. Planting is is a fine uh, thing to do, and it can uh, be crucial in areas where there's no seed source, for instance, uh, to to, re- to kickstart that forest. Uh, but where you do have a seed source, um, really the best thing to do is to let the trees and let nature do its thing, do what it wants to do, which is uh, create new woodlands. So those are the main things we've been doing. We've been using volunteers to do a lot of that work. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, that has led us to, uh, down a path of thinking about uh, working in the outside and restoring the forest as a way of retaining and improving people's mental health. Because anybody uh, you know who comes out and plants a tree will know the very powerful feeling that 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 uh, elicits in people. It's um, it's a it's quite a feeling and I think it gives people uh, a sense of hope for the future because they're planting a tree which will probably outlive them and will change the landscape around them so there's there's a big um, focus in our work on volunteers which sadly we've been we've been missing over the last couple of years. 
Well, certainly volunteerism has been cut across the board, obviously, by the pandemic and our inability to to get out and, and work together in any sort of setting. Isn't the problem with the, the deer and the sheep grazing is that they come along and uh, they essentially munch on the small tree saplings such that they can't get started to rejuvenate the forest. That's exactly it, Glenn. Um, it's amazing to think when you look at the landscape of Scotland, how efficient deer in particular, but sheep uh, and to a certain extent cattle are at finding and eating <laughs> tree seedlings. Uh, <laughs> they just hoover them up. And it's the the whole thing is that now that we've got such, uh, such a, a low ebb of uh, forest and woodland fragments um, and too many deer then there's you know that imbalance is being kept uh, there's a sort of uh, what should we say uh, um, there's a, some kind of balance but it's it's the wrong one if you like uh, it's being maintained at that because the, all the number of deer that are there in particular deer uh, there's enough of them to eat every single more or less every single uh, seedling that's produced um, and uh, that has come about through a long, long historical uh, uh, series of, uh, of management uh, uh, in, in Scotland from the earliest days, really, from you know, reducing forest cover, but also uh, in the latter couple of centuries by uh, uh, artificially increasing the number of deer uh, that uh, are, uh, are in the landscape, and that's through the the idea of you know encouraging sporting, um, sport shooting of deer. So unlike in North America, where you know you can you can get a permit and you're usually hunting in a woodland, in Scotland, deer hunting is a privately owned right, uh, and it's usually carried out uh, in an open an open landscape with devoid of trees. So there's a whole there's a whole issue of the tradition of that sporting. Uh, sporting activity, which uh, is deeply embedded in uh, the Scottish psyche uh, at, at the landowning level, uh, and trying to change that uh, away from deer and more towards uh, a more coherent uh, and fuller landscape with all its ecosystems intact. That's quite a tricky um, journey to take people on. So it seems, though, then that a part of what Trees for Life has to do is that you have to get actively involved in land management with uh, the various landowners in the large estates where these fragmented pine woods still exist. Yes, uh, so we're doing that. We, as I say, we do own ten thousand acres, uh, but that's only ten thousand acres in a you know four million square kilometers of uh, of Scotland. It doesn't, if you look at it on a map from space, it doesn't really uh, <laughs> amount to very much, but it feels big when you're standing on it. But yes, we need to um, reach out to partner organizations, uh, to uh, other landowners uh, and to uh, uh, state um, state bodies like the Forestry Commission uh, or S Scottish and Land Forest, Forest and Land Scotland, as they are now known, uh, to try and, you know, uh, work in partnership with people to, tr to uh, uh, advocate for a different kind of management which um, reduces deer. Uh, to a more sensible level and allows forest restoration. And that's being supported by government policy. Uh, certainly within the last five years, there's been quite a lot of focus at government, Scottish government level on changing that dynamic and, and the whole uh, discussion around climate change and carbon sequestration, of course, uh, trees uh, 
when they're growing are sequestering carbon uh, from the atmosphere and that's a good thing um, so you know cr creating more f of a forest environment in Scotland is not only good for biodiversity but also helps uh, tackle climate change to, to an extent anyway so that that is being supported but it's a very very slow process and um, you know there's quite a lot of uh, I wouldn't say suspicion but you know pe people move very slowly uh, if they're moving at all. I want to talk more about the, the climate change um, issue shortly, but the Caledonian forest is more than just a woodland. It, it really is an ecosystem that provides home, obviously, for a variety of plant and animal life. And from my reading, apparently that includes some of the rarest wildlife to be found in Britain. So loss of habitat is also an issue with the way that the, the forest now is broken into these small little segments rather than sweeping across the land in a broad scale. You guys are actually also involved in programs to, to further the development of that ecosystem, the reintroduction of wildlife, for example. I know there have been projects involving uh, beaver and bringing the lynx back and the gray wolf. The Scottish wildcat is a subject that's very dear to me. And you're also working to expand the range of the red squirrel, an iconic example of Scottish wildlife. So how is all of that being accomplished and, and how important is it that these projects go hand in hand with the restoration of the forest? At a small scale at, at Dundragon, yes, you're absolutely right. We're, we're planting trees, but we're also thinking about the, the ground flora that we've lost uh, from all that woodland. There, there are small pockets of it out there. Uh, and uh, to, to a certain extent, it's just a matter of giving things time uh, to recolonize and to, to move around the landscape. That's one of the things that the fragmentation process has meant that animals and plants that are forest dependent or native forest dependent uh, have been trapped in these little islands uh, and we've had local extinctions and things have become much rarer, uh, those things that are dependent on, on native woodland. So by reconnecting uh, native woodlands, we're allowing those species to move out and they're less vulnerable to, to extinctions. But yeah, we've lost an awful lot of our uh, biota and there's a famous, uh, famous list of uh, animals that um, from the 19th century, over over three years, there were hundreds of uh, raptors, birds of prey, uh, wildcats, polecats, uh, otters. Everything that wasn't a game animal was was uh, slaughtered, removed from the landscape. So we know that a mere 150, 200 years ago. The, the landscape was able to support, even in the absence of um, a big forest, it was able to support a lot more wildlife than it does now. So we've had these multiple uh, cataclysms, if you like, the loss of the forest, the removal of predators, uh, and now you know climate change and, and the biodiversity crisis. It's it's all coming to a head uh, now, and yeah, it's we we need more people to be fighting the fight. Uh, to try and reverse this uh, process, and yeah, and we are looking at reintroductions, uh, not only of the big things, the shiny, uh, the shiny animals like lynx and beaver, but also the small stuff like wood ants uh, and uh, butterflies and moths that have disappeared from the landscape because they, because the habitat has changed. And I believe I read where you're even involved in or, or part of that restoration of the ecosystem uh, gets right down to, you talked about ground cover, even down to things like fungi 
um, or fungi, I'm not sure which is the proper term, that exist as a ground cover. And if that doesn't exist, then it's almost like the whole forest then can't rejuvenate without sometimes just one element like that. Well, uh, you've mentioned uh, fungi, I would call them, but I don't know what they are. I don't don't think there's a a proper way. But yeah, we're learning so much now about the role of fungi in, in not only forests, but other plant communities as well. Uh, particularly with the work of Susan Simard in uh, Canada uh, and elsewhere, where those fungal networks are absolutely crucial in sequestering carbon into the soil, which is a big thing, uh, but also in terms of forest health and their ability to uh, move nutrients and and signal um, the presence of pests uh, across, uh, across the woodland. And not only within species, but now between species. We know that trees are communicating between species with each other. So there's much more going on underneath our feet when we walk in the forest, more or less, than, than there is going on above our heads. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, we're only just learning about that. And yes, when, when we, as Trees for Life, plant a tree in an open landscape, we're acutely aware that you know that's, that's only one bit of it and uh, we may not be uh, restoring a whole habitat by doing that, but we need to start somewhere. As the old saying goes, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, uh, and the second best time is now. So we need to start somewhere, and, and this is what we're this is what we're about. We have these these pockets, these fragments of of original pine wood forest, and the plan is that if you can restore those those fragments, get them back to health. And then begin to bridge the gap. Eventually, they will grow together, and, and the forest will expand by by these fragmented sections of pine wood forest connecting with each other. So, are you working primarily in the fragmented sections of the existing forest, or is it more important to be working in the open areas, as you say, to to build a bridge that will then connect perhaps the two dots at the end? As usual, then it's a it's a mix of the two. So we have a We've had a project running for the last three years, looking specifically at the fragments uh, in much, in great detail, their ecological health, but also starting a conversation, a dialogue with the owners and managers of these uh, fragments, because most of them are privately owned, and just trying to see where we can start that conversation, which would lead to uh, an improvement in the condition of the existing fragment, but also an expansion you know, out of these little uh, little islands. But on as well as that, you're absolutely right, a lot of our work in Glen Affric, for instance, uh, where we first started our work, is about creating uh, new islands where, you know, seeds uh, from the trees that we have planted are able to, you know, they have a chance at least uh, in the future or now to, to spread outside and start to melt into the, into the rest of the landscape. But if you look at a map, I have to say it's a, it's an enormous task, and I don't think any of us uh, would say that uh, necessarily planting um, is the way to go in the very long term. What we need to do is allow these forest fragments to start regenerating themselves. Uh, that is the, the sustainable way to do it, and that, that knocks on to reducing uh, the, herb, the herbivore pressure, including deer. Despite the efforts that Trees for Life has been making for the past many years now, you and I will likely not see a rejuvenated Caledonian forest in our lifetime. Am I correct in that, that this is actually a very long-term project to get the forest back to what it once was? 
Sure, sure. And yes, to see mature trees, uh, Caledonian pines or, or any species uh, go from seedling to a mature tree, that, yeah, that takes a long time. But even since the time I've been at Dundragon, that's only seven years, we've gone from uh, the point of uh, having no baby trees, if you want to put it that way, to having at least some. Uh, so we're seeing the effect quite quickly. Uh, and ev every forest that want wants to expand needs to go through that uh, cycle. And you need to you need to get it kick-started. And yes, it'll take many centuries to, to fully develop uh, and we won't see that, but um, there, you know, there are there are signs now that, uh, in places anyway, uh, that woodland development, woodland uh, restoration and expansion is beginning to happen, and that, you know, that's enough to keep me going every day when I get out of bed, is the fact that I can see the results of just our work over the last ten years. The Scotch pine is obviously the anchor tree of any pine wood, and and I can understand people saying, well, a pine wood, what is a pine wood? It's obviously, it's a woodland area with pine trees, but Trees for Life actually works with a great many more species than just pines and restoring the Caledonian forest is not about just planting millions and millions of Scotch pines. We're, we're talking about many other species as well, broadleaf trees like birch and rowan and aspen um, and various others. So you're actually working with a wide variety of trees, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah. We have a, uh, our tree nursery here at Dundragon. We grow anything up to 40 or 50 varieties. And there's a whole, you've mentioned some of them, but there are, you know, there are half a dozen or a dozen willows, uh, varieties of willow that uh, we grow as well. And these aren't trees necessarily that grow uh, down at, um, in the valley, but they're, they're montane species that grow higher up the hills. And there's a whole suite of woodland that we've lost there, which is part of that Caledonian forest. It's not just about pines, although, as you say, pines are a very important uh, part of it. And because uh, of the the fragmentation and the the, uh, the, the past history of those uh, of the pinewood fragments, they contain all the exciting rare species. So people have associated pinewoods with these this rare stuff. Um, but really, it's native woodland uh, across a, a much broader spectrum of, of species that's missing. I'm curious to know just how restoring this forest could help in the climate change issue. Uh, you touched earlier that, that trees can uh, help to, to scrub the atmosphere of carbon dioxide. It's a bit ironic, though, because wasn't it, in essence, climate change, be it centuries ago, that, that helped to destroy the Caledonian forest as it was then, and now by bringing it back, it could actually be a key weapon in fighting the climate change that we're so familiar with today. You're you're right to say that. Well, climate change has had an impact on uh, forest cover in Scotland. Uh, it wasn't the cause of the demise uh, of um, certainly not the Caledonian the, the pine woodland, uh, although pine has come and gone. It's one of the most dynamic species in the pollen record. In fact, pine. Uh, so uh, it's 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 ebbed and flowed as the centuries have passed, and yes, there has been there has been non-human uh, climate change in the past, which uh, which has changed things dramatically. But that would have changed the character of what would have been a you know a forest which would have continued, and what we've got now is no forest. Uh, so uh, you know that that's the thing that we're trying to we're trying to tackle, and the growing of the trees is one thing, obviously. Trees are made of carbon, 
so the, as the trees take on, uh, as they grow, they're sequestering carbon in the in the heartwood, uh, and that you know those trees can live for anything from 150 in a birch to 500, 600 years in uh, a pine tree. So you're locking carbon up for that long. But when the tree dies, which it eventually will, that carbon starts to slowly be released again. Uh, so although uh, you know planting trees now is a good thing and it will, will suck uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, in the long term, we need to do all those other things that we've been talking about uh, as, as humans uh, to reduce our carbon. Uh, footprint and reduce uh, fossil fuel um, reliance. But what's really interesting now is going back to the the, the fungal story is that we're now realizing that they, the fungi us uh, in a in a good uh, act um, healthy woodland ecosystem, most of the carbon is in the soil uh, and is being moved around and sequestered by the fungi. So that's a very important thing that we just only now thinking, oh my goodness, you know, it's okay to plant the trees, but what we really need is uh, soil conservation and uh, the establishment of these fungal communities. And that, that could really be a game changer. Let's get back to the, the prime activity, I suppose, at least my perception of your prime activity, and that's the planting of trees. I learned of Trees for Life through a friend who has through your program, created her own little grove of trees, and I've contributed to her grove for planting of trees. So that's an area where the public can get involved and work with Trees for Life beyond just obviously being a physical volunteer and going out and putting saplings into the ground. There are ways that people can get involved by making donations to provide for the planting of trees. Tell me a bit about that program and, and how can people get involved and help you? Yes, yeah, so um, people can visit our website uh, and have a look at our activities there. And there's a specific uh, area that we've, as you say, we have uh, become well known for, which is uh, supporting us to plant trees. Um, and that uh, effectively means giving us a donation and we will uh, plant a tree uh, for you uh, in a grove. It's not marked in any way. Uh, those those trees are part of our, our planting program and it, it will happen somewhere in the in the highlands of Scotland, uh, but we can't we can't point to your tree necessarily. Although we can have you know it depends when you donate, uh, and uh, you know which particular area we're working in at that time. It's, it's possible to sort of draw draw a ring around uh, a week, an area, but um, yeah, that's very important to us. Um, it's one of our major sources of uh, funding, and but more and more we, we're. Uh, we're uh, talking to people about our whole rewilding effort. So it's not just about planting a tree, but it's about all the other work that we do, conserving squirrels, as you've said, uh, taking uh, potential steps forward to lynx reintroduction, um, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, and, the, and the work that goes into uh, uh, encouraging natural regeneration, which is a, a major part of our work at Dundragon. Uh, but people, people can donate to that. Uh, and uh, yeah, they can form a grove, which can then other people can then donate into uh, for a special occasion uh, or a memorial. We have a lot of uh, memorial groves for people, uh, and it's just a really nice, uh, really nice way of of uh, engaging with with folk who can't come, as you say, and and help us out physically. But to be clear, you can't 
if I were to, to donate and plant a tree, which I, I've done, I can't on my next trip to Scotland go to a specific spot and walk into a woodland and say, this is my tree. You know, <laughs> it's not marked. It doesn't have my name on it or a plaque or anything of that nature. No, we've deliberately not gone down that route. Uh, some people do, but uh, you'd end up with an awful lot of plaques or an awful <laughs> lot of uh, you know uh, markers on trees. So all we can say is your tree was probably planted in this sort of 10, 20 hectare patch. Um, But uh, I think most, and most of the time, a lot of the, a lot of the places that we're planting trees are quite inaccessible uh, for people to get to in any case, because we we're trying to put trees back in a landscape where there are currently no trees. So uh, at the back of beyond uh, creating little uh, seed sources for the, for, for the rest of the landscape. So it's not often easy for people to, which is a bit of an issue for us, but we, uh, we overcome it, <laughs> uh, but uh, there there are places that you can come and walk at Dundragon and see some of the same kinds of um, tree planting areas and uh, more natural uh, uh, habitats, which gives you an idea of what it's like. So the question would be for people who perhaps are hearing this and uh, maybe it's the first time they've even given any thought to the Caledonian forest or didn't even know it existed previously. And and are curious or inspired to learn more about these pine woods and the woodland areas. Where are some areas in Scotland where tourists can go and get a sense of what the Caledonian forest was like, see perhaps some of these fragmented woodland areas, um, places to see what a forest habitat is like and what the objective, the long-term objective for Trees for Life is? Well, the most extensive areas of what we call semi-natural habitat for pine woods uh, are in Speyside, so the famous whiskey uh, centre. So uh, in the, in the centre of uh, Scotland, north north centre of Scotland, in the Cairngorms National Park, that's that's the heartland at the moment of uh, places like Abernethy uh, and Rothiemurchus, uh, which uh, will give you an idea of what a big pine wood can look like. Um, other areas might be Glen Affric, which is one of the areas that we've worked in. That's a national nature reserve uh, where people can see uh, an, an extensive pine wood. And of course, there's our, our own property at Dundragon, which, where we're soon to be opening, or next year anyway, opening a rewilding centre, which will be welcoming people in and sh- uh, giving them a chance to interact and, and think about uh, rewilded habitat and rewilded landscape at Dundragon which is in Glen Morrison, just west of uh, Loch Ness, famous Loch Ness. Uh, and the habitat here is much more mixed. It's less, uh, less pine wood and more oak, birch and, and uh, pine. So it gives you an idea of what a, a more mixed woodland would look like. But So there are these little pockets uh, in various places, but people often come to Scotland and they, what they encounter is uh, non-native uh, industrial tree farms uh, and even if they're well managed, they're never going to uh, be as be as interesting and exciting a place to visit as a native woodland. But I would say, yeah, Speyside, Glen Affric, uh would be the um, the key spots. Some people, perhaps, and I expect perhaps some of the the, the landowners, the estate owners that you've talked with, who um, have have not bought into what you're trying to do, would ask this, and that would be. Why not just let nature take its course? Why should Trees for Life and others intervene? Uh, 
my response to that is usually that would be great if if it were possible but at the moment in the in the political uh setup we're in it's not working uh and we need to take action now in order to kickstart this process so we, we can't really afford to wait any longer with only one percent uh of the caledonian forest left in any uh reasonable state then you know if if we wait any longer our, our children will be asking us why why we why we waited so we need to act now uh and um, with deer numbers as they are and with the landscape as it is uh, and the and the the human impact over many centuries and even millennia uh, i think it's reasonable to say well we you know we need a we need to input now in order to get this thing going uh, and we hope and pray absolutely that in the future um, the deer numbers will be uh, or the, the browsing pressure will be low enough that yes nature will be able to do its own thing uh, and that will be much cheaper and much more sustainable. Uh, I would agree with that. But where we are here and now, we need to take action. And how different will Scotland be? If you're successful, how different will Scotland be um, 50 years, 100 years, 300 years from now? So in our dreams, <laughs> we see that <laughs> as, you know, for a start, uh, the uh, the soil uh, soil quality will be much better uh, across the highlands. There'll be less flooding going on, um, less carbon uh, being um, uh, emitted uh, from the landscape, uh, and people uh, will be have a much more sustainable and uh, better life uh, in the highlands. My thanks to my guest Doug Gilbert conservation manager at Trees for Life Dundregan Estate in the Scottish Highlands. As we discussed, the Trees for Life mission involves far more than just the simple act of planting trees, although that is a major effort. Their work includes land management, species reintroduction, and much more. To learn about their full vision for the Highlands and find ways you can help, from donations to volunteering, visit their website, treesforlife.org.uk. You'll find a link in our show notes at underthetartansky.scot. If you'd like to know more about Scotland in general, well, check out any of our other dozens of archived episodes and do what I do. Check out Suzanne Arbuckle's Adventures Around Scotland travel blog. She can even help you plan your trip to Scotland if you need that sort of thing. A link to her blog is also in our show notes. You know, travel restrictions continue to keep many of us from returning to Scotland, so if there's a subject you'd like us to delve deeper into here on the podcast, by all means, get in touch. You can do that by emailing glenn at underthetartansky.scot. A rating and review on your favorite podcast listening app is always greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to support the podcast further, you can buy me a cuppa on our coffee site. Just look for that bright pink button on the website. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tavaliv, I guess Alba Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter 
where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>